Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. Welcome to the 23rd episode of Le Corner. This is my great pleasure to have found some, some time to speak with Jason Roberts, CONCACAF's Director of Development. Jason is a former Premier League football player, starting his career at Ace Football Club back in the mid-90s uh, until his retirement in 2014. I've been close to Jason over the past years, and actually back in 2017, he was appointed CONCACAF's Director of Development to lead the Confederation's efforts. In this episode, we went through his journey as a professional footballer, and we've also discussed his second life and the challenge that surrounds it. Personally, I've loved discussing with him and having his feedback on how to manage a professional football career and especially the transition off pitch was really amazing. So have a good listening and hope to see you soon. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? I'm great, JB. Great to be on. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, for, for those who are listening to us, you, you cannot see the video, but you should see Jason's smile on his face. And he it's some kind of a poker face that he has. He's like, he's, he's a pundit, so you can see like how how good he can be. And you can see that now he has switched on, just like on, on the pitch. And, and you can see like the communication guy coming in. So good, good to see you, Jason. Good to see you. I'm not sure how I feel about what you just said. I, I thought all this time I was just being myself, but... <laughs> <laughs> No, actually, it's like, I've, I think, not chasing, but I think we, we wanted to do this podcast for quite some time. So I'm, I'm very pleased to, to have you on and to bring a bit of a, actually a new perspective from a player, from a player point of view. Like we had Luisa, like I told you the, the other day, and, and I think that's good to have another player and we will continue to do so. So uh, I, I'm really glad to, to have you on today. Thank you, my friend. I'm, I'm telling you, I've been looking forward to this. I've known you a long time and we've been discussing the opportunity for me to come on. And I have to say, seeing you on screen and seeing your wonderful backdrop that you have there in Paris, in France, is um, it's a pleasure for me. And you also invited me. So I'm glad that it was said on the podcast. So we have yeah. um, we have witnesses. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You are my guest, and and I and I send the invite for sure. Um, usually, where where we start, Jay, is like we like the people to have some kind of an understanding of 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 the guest on the podcast. So, might might not be for you. It might be long because you you were a former player, like soccer, football player here in Europe, as we say. And yeah, so can, can you tell us a bit more about? the whole journey, what you've been doing, maybe starting on pitch and maybe before that, if you want to. And then we will we'll discuss around the off-pitch activities or, uh, as well, since you've retired. I will. And, and again, thank you for the invitation, JB. I have to say, we'll have to have a conversation afterwards about your use of the word soccer. It seems that you've become very familiar with that. And that may point to some other, some other things we can discuss later on. Um, but yeah, I mean, football is uh, in my DNA. It's been my passion since I was a, a, a child, really. And as many children, I, I, I had this dream of playing in the Premier League and, and making the best of my ability. Um, but as ever, it's such a difficult ambition to have. Uh, so, many, uh, so many young people have this dream. And my dream was very difficult. I started playing amateur football, playing at a good level at a young age uh, for the likes of Chelsea, for the likes of Tottenham and Watford. And at 16 years old, I... Which age? I, 16. I started playing maybe maybe nine years old, 10 years old, playing in the local teams, um, which was a challenge really because it was a lot of traveling. I was from Northwest London, a, a neighborhood called Stonebridge Estate, very Caribbean. And there wasn't many teams in the local in the local district, so I had to do a lot of traveling, a lot of support for my family to be able to make that a reality. Um, and even you know joining Tottenham as a 13 year old, getting to the other side of London 
it was very difficult. It was, was one of the challenges that I faced. But as I got older and I, I was uh, progressing up the ranks and doing fairly well, playing for the likes of Watford, I moved to Chelsea as a 16-year-old. And in England at that time, there was the youth training scheme. You would leave school mm. and you would go into an apprenticeship where you would not only train, uh, but you would also do jobs around the building. You clean people's boots. You'd clean up. That the was during the nineties, right? Yeah, that was during that, the nineties. Those, those days, yeah. and I have to tell you, it was interesting because you know there was a lot of camaraderie built amongst amongst the group. Um, you definitely got a different grounding in cleaning <laughs> the dressing rooms and and some of the way you were treated by the professionals who expected you to clean their boots, clean their cars if they needed to. Um, but actually. At the last hurdle, I was told that I, I wasn't going to be accepted into the program at Chelsea. And for a 16-year-old kid with this dream of playing, of playing professional football, it was devastating. Mm. Uh, it knocked me really, really hard. And for the next two years, I didn't play football. I tried to find another oh, avenue. Yeah? From 16 to yeah, 18, I, you stopped? You quit? 16 to 18, no football. Um, really trying to find myself as a, as a young man um, who had a dream taken away from him. And I think this is a, a journey that we hear of more and more. I think the game is thinking about how we can engage these young people in a, in a better way, how we can have some sort of duty of care for people mm -hmm. who've been involved in the game at, at, at an elite level. And suddenly you find yourself with that dream no longer a reality and asking yourself, what else can I do? What else um, am I trained to do? What else do I have the capacity to do? I am so, a bit maybe digressing here, Jay, but yes, hearing about, I mean, and that's something we can discuss further, but I know you've been involved with Players Union and all of that, but hearing about Chelsea, player welfare, it sounds to me like what, what I've heard quite a lot of time around farming, uh, farming young players and having mm. more than 60 to 70 teenagers or uh, not adults that you, that you actually put on loan uh, everywhere in Europe so that they can play in other divisions and the best one can come back to, to the pro level for, for Chelsea. So yeah, I, th I think not, not much has I've changed for the last maybe three, three decades. I think the game is in a difficult position where this is concerned because, of course, these are young men and women. Of course, we have a duty of care to make sure that the landing is as soft as it can be, that we can provide other avenues into employment, into education, into opportunity. But the elite game is what it says on the tin. It's the elite game. And there mm. will be a very small number of individuals who make the grade. I, I believe at last count, it was close to 1% of those that play the game that actually go on and make a professional debut uh, for a league side. So that's very, very difficult. And I think we need to do a better job of creating that narrative around the, around the access of the game to say, yes, of course, this is about you becoming the best player in the world and winning World Cups and, and winning leagues. <laughs> but actually, it's also about an opportunity for you to create a network, to learn about yourself, to educate yourself, to provide mm. um, opportunities for yourself. Because whether the game is, uh, whether you finish with the game at 17, 16, like I thought I was, or whether you finish with the game at 35 when I actually did, You still need to lean into those skill sets and that that challenge that something you're so passionate about, something that really defines you at your core is no longer a part of your life in the same way as it was. Mm. And it feels like a death, somewhat of a death of yourself yeah. when you're no longer able to represent yourself on the pitch. Yeah, it's players, players mention it as a, as a second life or something where you have to, to reborn yourself or kind of like completely erase and switch to, to a new life and something like, it's like a, a small death and, and starting all over again. Yeah. And it's certainly very humbling because you realize that the world doesn't revolve around you. Um, and that there's another person about to take your place, as you've probably done several times to other players, and your time is coming. You have a, a finite time to be able to participate on the pitch with our wonderful game. And no matter who you are, no matter how good you are, there's a time mm. when that day is coming. And that, that is something we need to do a better job in the game of educating our youngsters specifically 
of course, our more old, uh, our more senior players, but specifically our younger players. And having that duty of care, I know a lot of work is being done by unions. I know we're, we're seeing clubs now investing in departments and resources to make sure that players who don't um, make the grade are able to be managed through that process. And having gone through mm -hmm. it, I think it's a very worthwhile agenda and very worthwhile uh, input of resources to make sure that we, that we improve the overall impact of the game in our communities. So having gone through that, it was a challenge for me uh, as a young man, uh, and I was very fortunate, and I know we'll go into this later on, but I was extremely fortunate to be given an opportunity to attend some trials, to be given a second yeah, chance. I'd like to ask you that. Like at 18, what, what makes you, is it, is it at the Wolves, I think, or? Maybe, well, actually, JB, there's a, there's a stage before that, um, and I'm very fortunate, and I know we may speak later on about my family. I have a f uh, family contacts within within football. I have a footballing family and three uncles who played professional football. And it was really mm -hmm. through their support, reaching out to clubs and trying to get me a trial. And I realized how fortunate I was and privileged that I had that support from people who had played the game and had seen the game from a different vantage point than I had at that time. So I had a trial at Hayes Football Club, which is, which is an amateur club, where two of my, all three of my uncles actually had some time playing for that club. And uh, my time there was incredible. I fell in love with the game again. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about being a Premier League player, player and mm. playing in the World Cup. It was actually about the fact that I just wanted to explore how good I could become at playing football, regardless of the level. And I very rapidly made a name for myself. I don't think I was playing uh, amateur football for more than seven, eight months before I was the record amateur uh, transfer fee paid for a player. A very long time ago, quarter of a million pounds back then was considered... <laughs> <laughs> a record. No one had ever paid that amount of money for an amateur player before. And I went into the professional game with Wolverhampton Wanderers uh, and my career progressed from Wolves who were in the championship at the time. Obviously, they're having a, a fantastic time now in the Premier League. Um, I was transferred again, a record transfer to Bristol Rovers. Um, I met some excellent coaches there and really improved my game and my understanding of the game. Um, what Ian were the Holloway. best moments for you like if you have one or two best and maybe the hardest ones, like in terms of like the lows and the ups, I mean, I guess, like you said, from that's a complete other life. And I guess you had a first life from, from zero to 16 and then a new life from 18 to 35 and then a third life again after your transition. But in this second life, what was the, uh, if you have one or two memories like of the, of the ups and the lows. Yes. Uh, you know, JB, it's very difficult to highlight any. Um, but what I will say is that my journey from Bristol Rovers to West Bromwich Albion to Wigan to Blackburn to Reading, all of that journey was at different levels from the amateur game to Division Two, Division One, the Championship, the Premier League, and of course, playing for my country. Um, so, so at every level, I thought, maybe this is the best it gets. Maybe I have to prove something to get to the next level. Um, some some low moments, of course, was leaving Chelsea as a 16-year-old and thinking that football was no longer uh, an opportunity for me. But another low level was making my debut season in the Premier League and realizing uh, with West Bromwich Albion at 24 years old that I wasn't good enough. I wasn't nearly good enough for that level. And that was an extremely low moment. And the fact that I was playing in the Premier League, making a living for myself didn't help me uh, with the reflection mm -hmm. that I needed to do so much more. And I went back to the championship, had a successful season and came back bigger, stronger, better and, and prepared to sacrifice to make the best of my ability. So whilst that was a low moment, some of my lowest moments have been at the highest level when you realize that you need to do a lot more if you're going to share the pitch with world-class greats. You need to take every last bit of your of your passion and your and and your ability to to stay there yeah i i understand you i understand i mean i've never played that level 
to be to be crystal clear that I can. I've I can, seen I can, you play JB, so I would yeah. like to confirm that you haven't been at that level. But I yeah, think we've all encountered that in life, JB, where you've made you've have an achievement or you've done something where has be has been a, a focus, and then you realize that it takes more. How difficult it is, first of all, to get there, but to stay there, and that you're going to have to do do more. Um, and I think that that was certainly a moment for me where I had to go back, look myself in the mirror and say, this isn't about money. This isn't about profile. This is about being oh. the best I can be. And I need to do more. I need to work harder. And um, I think yeah. that reflection has probably served me well in the rest of my life. And just like for, for our listeners, like I've met you the first time, I think that was the time at UEFA where I was creating the UEFA MIP, so the executive master for international players, and you were one of the pioneers in the first cohort. But from what you've just said, I feel like my next question was around why why did you transition successfully on pitch to off pitch? And I guess what you've just said is like questioning yourself, always trying to do more, understanding that at some point it can stop like the next day or that you've reached the limit and that nothing is granted. Uh, and that you need always to push harder or to to make something different. Uh, I guess maybe this is this is the reason why you've also been looking at okay, what's next for me? Uh, how can I transition off pitch in a in a successful way or in a in a good manner? Uh, I guess that's that's all related at the end of the day. It is JB, but I, I wouldn't give myself that much credit. I would certainly say that, um, you know, having, having my uncles, Cyril Regis, one of the first black players to play for England and to play in what was then the first division, David Regis, who played in the Premier League, uh, my uncle Otis Roberts, who played in Europe, um, having them around me really prepared me for the challenges in football and in transition from the pitch into into my second life as we've been referring to it. They always encouraged me to place myself in uncomfortable growth situations. Whilst mm -hmm. I was playing in the Premier League, I was given the opportunity to host the 606, BBC 606 show, which was really a phone-in um, to talk about the current events in football, the performances of other teams, and of course, how your team is doing. If a million people would would listen in and dial in and place their calls. And that was an extremely uncomfortable growth moment, uh, but taking me out of my environment. Uh, I, I also joined the Professional Footballers Association uh, Management Committee, which which was, you know, advocating for rights for our players. And I, I, I really realized then that the opportunity to continue my education in governance, and we, we created a governance course with the PFA, Uh, and then in my transition, the opportunity to continue my education, you mentioned earlier, JB, the MIP course, which really allowed me the opportunity to create a great network, but more so commit to educating myself and becoming better in anything that I, that I wanted to do. And of course, you can do all of these things, but none of those things um, uh, are, are created in a silo without opportunity. So that's about how can you create opportunities for yourself to be able to utilize all of that education um, that you've committed to and invested in. Um, but I think my transition has really been about those those values of working hard, of making myself uncomfortable, setting uncomfortable um, ambitions, and of course, searching out opportunities for your network and, and, and people that you've built relationships with. So I feel the advice and the knowledge from my family and my uncles mm. really helped me in that journey. I think it's been, it's been a real privilege for me to have that. Yeah. And I, while you were talking, like maybe that's something we'll touch upon afterwards in terms of like your new role as I think director of development within CONCACAF. Uh, but looking at this transition period is like, what, what have you realized that you were missing, missing or, I mean, you talked about the governance or the opportunity also to educate yourself. It's like, I mean, you've been a player for, for almost two, 20 years. And at the end of your career, you realize you're missing so many stuff or I don't know, like to, to be part of, of the governance or to be part of the administration of, the, of this beautiful game is like, what did you realize was missing? Because at the same time, I know that you have a foundation. So... I guess also you educated yourself around 
how you manage an association or, or kind of a foundation, how you make that work. But at the same time, you must have realized like, okay, I don't necessarily have the, I don't know if it's the keys or the understanding or, or the tricks to actually navigate within this ecosystem. So I realized very quickly, and I think it wasn't a realization, it was a knowledge. I knew that there was gaps, mm. of course, in my experience and, and my knowledge uh, that will, can be fixed by education. You can, you can educate yourself and always have that mindset of wanting to improve and wanting to be open to learning new things. I think there also was a gap in being part of an organization, whether that's working at a certain stage and working your way up and, and learning things on that journey. Uh, whilst I was playing football, uh, many other people were in organizations learning those lessons of building relationships and, 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 and learning about a corporate structure and governance, of course. But I also realized quite quickly that there were things that I learned on the pitch that were transferable in the environment of the business of sport and the business of football and the governance of mm -hmm. football, whether that's about building relationships, whether that's about understanding how to lead a team of individuals towards your aims and objectives, dealing with failure. Uh, Speaking so different languages. Things. Speaking different languages, which I haven't done. And I'm embarrassed that some of my <laughs> colleagues in my dressing room would speak seven languages. And I just about spoke English <laughs> at, a, at a grade six level. But so but what was, you have is like the, the capacity to adapt to any culture or anybody. That's something that all football players have, though. No, I think the dressing room gives you those skills because it's be, it became a place where everybody virtually, certainly in the UK, was of the same background, maybe racial divides or, or, or whether you was from England, Scotland, Ireland. And then it became a very cosmopolitan place with people from all over the world with different cultures. And you had to learn how to operate and make people comfortable and try to try to get towards the aim and objective of winning a football match, creating an environment where it was comfortable for everybody when some didn't even speak the language. But I realized that I had learned a lot through that experience. And the foundation, as you mentioned, JB, there was a real moment for me when, as a footballer, you walk into a room and mostly people want something from you. They want your attention. They want to talk to you about something. Yeah. They want to sell you something. Your wealth. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, or they want an autograph, whatever it may be. Mm. And I found with the foundation that actually I was being introduced to rooms where I wanted something from the room, whether that was a platform to discuss the aims of my foundation, whether it was trying to find corporate or, or other non-for-profit support, or whether it was just trying to advocate for sport, for social change and my foundation and what football does for the community, the country, the world. And I realized that um, that was something that was really a purpose for me and a skill set that I, I, I seem to do relatively well in. And the, the, the success of my foundation was really testament to that. And of course, the hard work of all the volunteers, all the staff who, who have bought into what we have created with the foundation. Yeah, small digress, right, again, another digression, but I want to ask you this is like, what would be your best advice for younger generations or, or current players where even more today than during your period where there is more and more demand and that everything is being asked to the players, but coming also with Web2 and all the social media and the brand reputation from every athlete and using the athletes and their social media to actually raise the profile of different brands and sponsors and I mean, there's way more demand, even more today, on those young players every time they are out of the locker room. Just like you said, an autograph or sharing a picture or doing more, being perfect. What, what would be for you the, the top one or top two advices you could give to anybody out there? I think first and foremost, it's that your career doesn't last forever. If we start there, and if we start that, I know at this moment, it feels like this is something <laughs> that is a right. It's my right to play football. Um, as I said earlier, the one thing that is guaranteed when you start to play is that you'll have to stop one day, whether it's through injury, whether it's through um, ability, whether it's the pathway of your, of your journey, at some point you'll stop. So appreciate every single moment. And I remember rolling my eyes at the older professionals telling me to enjoy the game and take every session as your last. 
but it really is something that's fundamental to your enjoyment of the sport. And then following on from that is to make sure that whilst you commit everything, while you give everything and enjoy this privilege we have of playing the sport, find other interests. Make yourself uncomfortable in other ways. Football can become a bubble. It can become very comfortable in your environment. Surround yourself with different experiences. Find other interests and make yourself uncomfortable in your life and in your pursuits. Because yes, you've been successful. Yes, you have done a fantastic job in your career of football, but you need to ask yourself what comes next. And I think on the back of that is the education, the the creating new networks of people, finding out who you are as an individual, all comes from appreciating where you are in that moment and also recognizing mm-hmm. that you need to have a life outside of that bubble of football. I would say that would be... That would be uh, my advice to any young player. Quite wise words. I, I do not say that often, but wise words, mate. <laughs> I, I would say that I, if it's wise, it's because wiser people said it to me and I ignored it. So I would <laughs> say to the younger players, be smarter than me and, um, and listen, listen to, to uh, some of the older players because they might the have old some, folks. some advice. <laughs> yeah, all right. All right, I see. So now I, I, want, I want us to, to discuss a bit more about your new role within CONCACAF and, and what it takes and maybe to present it a little bit, but also to, to tell us like what it feels like to be a former player and to do that and to be more into the off-pitch, like I was saying, into the administration and trying to, to change things from, from within the, the governance. So just for, for listeners, is like you, you're working at, at CONCACAF. So CONCACAF, just briefly, is one of the six confederations um, in, within FIFA, just like UEFA or Comebol is another one. And so the territory of Central and North America is the one that you are trying to, to cover and develop. Uh, and you are the director of development. So concretely, I guess that your role is to um, improve uh, grassroots or to try to have increased the number of amateur players playing everywhere and increasing the the level playing field. I guess that's how you guys say it uh, from from the more technical perspective. But yeah, if you can briefly tell us what does it mean to be director of development within such a, a confederation and, and what are your daily activities? I certainly will, JB. Uh, but first of all, uh, we, we opened in our opening. Um, I didn't highlight the fact that the proudest moment of my career, um, I told you some low points but the the Mm -hmm. proudest moment was representing my country my father was born in Grenada it's a it's a small Mm -hmm. island in the Caribbean a hundred thousand people 10 miles by 20 miles and I represented Grenada since I was 22 until I was 30 and representing my country was by far my proudest moment and most fulfilling moments within football and as a result of that um, moving back to Grenada when I retired Uh, I was fortunate enough to continue my education and be successful in landing the role of director of development for CONCACAF. So as you've highlighted, JB, CONCACAF is a confederation for North America, Central America and the Caribbean, 41 different countries, 41 different realities, 41 different opportunities to to develop and manage and promote football. And that's our role, uh, as well as running competitions like our Gold Cup, like our Nations League, like our CONCACAF uh, Women's Qualifiers, which, which we've recently uh, launched. And my role as Director of Development is to ensure that we uh, have a holistic view of development, as you can imagine, 41 different realities, uh, yeah. very different in every single country. Um, so for, for techn- people listening to us, I guess the, for like, I guess the United States and maybe Mexico would be the, the two, I mean, the, not the most advanced, but the one that are the most like, uh, successful maybe at elite level, but at the same time, you have plenty of other federations that are mostly amateur player that are trying to, to become more and more professional and that you also have to help develop and, and raise the level of the game more or less. Yes, it's a very sophisticated um, system and a diverse region. You're right, from the likes of USA, Mexico, Canada, in North America to Central America, Nicaragua, Panama, Guatemala, um, Belize, and then you go to the Caribbean, Jamaica, Barbados, Grenada, Trinidad and Tobago, 
very different cultures before you even get into yeah. the regions mm. and the development of football and the languages Dutch in the Dutch Caribbean. And how do you and adapt French. to that? Like the level of maturity of development mm. is completely different. So how do yeah. you how do you do, adapt to that? Yeah. Well, that's the exciting opportunity. Um, first and foremost, I mentioned our competitions because in my day of playing in the region, there wasn't much competitions, much pathway for competitions. Mm. And that's why under our, the leadership of our president, Victor Montaliani, first and foremost, mm. we invested in growing the Gold Cup, which is our premier uh, competition, uh, making sure we have the Nations League similar to UEFA, which makes our more developing nations have the opportunity to play more. To play. Um, mm. You talk about success, the USA women's team, the Canadian women's team, the success they've had on the global stage but of course the opportunity to make sure that our more developing countries are having the opportunity and access to competition so we launched the CONCACAF W women's qualifiers all of these things are part of development in my view but after competition mm. comes the development element and that's what I think about every day that's what I wake up thinking about and it's from a technical standpoint how do we ensure that coaches have access to coaching education uh, from a professional football standpoint, how do we use club licensing, benchmarking data to inform our decisions on development? From the women's perspective, how do we ensure that it's inclusive, that we're finding pathways for women in, in areas which have varying levels of gender imbalance? Uh, how do we also ensure that there's a corporate social responsibility at the heart of that? That whilst you mentioned earlier, yes, it is about grassroots and yes, it is about using football as a vehicle for social change. But also we need to make sure that a young player in any of our country has the same opportunity to be part of the elite pathway as mm. anywhere else in our confederation and the world. So as you probably hazard from that, it's a very broad brief, broad, but yeah. one that um, I think speaks to the way that we are looking at development here at CONCACAF, which is how do we embed that into absolutely everything that we do from the way that we fund each of our member associations to the programs that we, that we deliver with them, but also how do we invest in people to make sure that young people can dream of being an administrator, a coach, a referee, a player. Mm. All of those things are part of development from from, from our, our vision and the vision of our president. Yeah, okay. And you can retain also the talent to help them like grow at every national association level. Um, from from what you've just said, I mean, it's very broad and it's very hard to, to try to handpick or, or to go into this. But I was thinking like with the World Cup being... 2026 along the way is like do you see i mean just i i was just thinking out there while you were talking is like do you have a clear roadmap or do you see that as a clear opportunity for you to try to for the region actually in terms of like this is going to be big uh for football uh this is going to be like a i would not say a big party but there will be some some excitement do, do you have plans i guess i guess the region is like getting ready for it more or less and that you you will use that to to improve what you guys are doing today absolutely and the united 2026 bid a bid between usa mexico canada um it feels like a concacaf bid it's driven by the leadership mm. of concacaf and of course each of those member associations so we now have the opportunity not just to showcase uh, the the World Cup within our region, which in itself is a huge achievement and the opportunities to inspire a whole generation of people and for people to actually see the world's biggest showcase, but also to make sure that the legacy piece of that is is a is CONCACAF focused. Um, I would hazard a guess that the legacy piece wouldn't be about new new um, tournaments in the region mm. of USA, Mexico, Canada, and possibly will not be about new infrastructure in USA, Mexico, Canada. So how can we make sure that this legacy piece is really based around the development of football holistically within the whole of the region? I think that's certainly a focus um, for me. And the hope is that, yes, there's those tangible benefits of people seeing and feeling part of the biggest show in the world. Um, but then there's also those untangibles about where does the resources go? Where does the, the opportunity to use that power of football and the legacy of the, of the World Cup to really inform our North Star of football, which is how can we develop, promote and manage the sport? This is a mm. huge opportunity for us and one that I'm really proud to be a small part of. 
And on, on the back of it, I was, I was just thinking like, it's not, I don't think it's a tricky question and just let me know if, if you don't want to answer it, but, um, with the MLS, like the MLS, I guess the MLS must be a driving force in terms of like, for, for the whole region, you mentioned Belize, Guatemala, whatever, uh, we know the MLS is looking at taking some star player from Europe, mostly like at the end of their career. But today they are trying to get them earlier and earlier because they are being more and more attractive. But at the same time, they need also to have a better roster and to, to increase the level of the overall players. And I guess for the region and for CONCACAF, having the MLS was also pushing uh, the boundaries there and and being more and more professional and even better at the elite level, that must be some kind of a huge or opportunity for you guys to try to try to push forward for that. There's no doubt that the MLS is a big driver for mm. um, for the region. There's no doubt about that. It's one of our premier uh, leagues. I think what's exciting about what's happening at the MLS, and we've seen huge growth in regards to franchises <clears throat> from the business side, um, franchise valuations, etc. But I think also what, what people are not really focusing on is their investment into MLS Next, which is their youth development platform, yeah. their investment into MLS2, which is creating reserve teams and new structures for their teams to develop local talent, to recruit um, not just within their country, but region-wide, possibly globally, to be able to be in the market to compete for the best global talent and to develop that talent uh, within the MLS. And we've seen we've seen that within the region. Liga Mekis in Mexico is really growing and, and and finding new ways to to promote their brand in Canada. The Canadian Professional League is really doing a fantastic job of growing the grassroots and developing talent. You'll see. Um, you'll see the development of the Canadian Professional League and the likes of Alfonso, Alfonso Davies and, and Buchanan. You know, these are talents mm -hmm. that have been developed in Canada and are now performing at the highest level on the global stage. So I think we're seeing that more from our, from our region. And hopefully that's an indication of, of what we're going to continue to see in the central, in Central America. We've seen really strong performances in our, in our Champions League and some of our competitions from clubs uh, from Central America. And in the Caribbean, we have some work to do in regards to the professionalization of the game. But again, that's an opportunity. Uh, we know that there's so much talent within our region. What we need to do is work with other stakeholders to provide opportunities and access um, for the, this young talent and also for to create new pathways for this talent mm. to be seen and to be given the opportunity to make the best of what they have. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I've, I had one, one question on what you just said, like on the, uh, the MLS and the MLS Next and everything we had Chris Lawson on, on this show. He's more on the media side, but I know well MLS Next and all the work they are doing as well in terms of talent detection uh, and improving like any player uh, potential. And they are relying a lot on, on new technologies and especially around data. Uh, and I was wondering whether that's also something like for player development pathways and for the whole region, that's something you're looking at in terms of like trying to use new tech or to maximize the data I mean, to use the data to maximize the potential of any players playing out there. Well, it's really down to what you highlighted earlier, JB, about the, the realities on the ground for all of our member associations. Yeah. I would say that Ernie Stewart and, and what, they're, what, what they're doing at US Soccer and what they're doing at MLS, of course, they have a challenge about the amount of people playing the sport in their region. <laughs> How do you knit all of that together? How do you use data to inform some of the and, and also content to inform some of the decisions you're making in such a big country um and of course uh, we've done a lot of work alongside our friends at fifa in creating uh, a data report based on on on, on data legends etc on our gold cup uh, and whilst this will not seem like a huge step to many on the global context of football. For many of our member associations, they've had it, never had any data it's around their teams, yeah. around, their in the, around their players and around, around their style of play. All of these yeah, things game are revolutionary, a game changer to them. But I want to speak a little bit about data um, 
JB, in regards to the work that we're doing, and we've invested a lot of resources under Jonathan Martinez, who heads up our professional mm-hmm. football department, who I work very closely with, in a benchmarking report, a data report, which really collates a lot of information around players playing the game, the women's game, um, infrastructure, um, tournaments, competitions. And what we've really aimed to do is use some of this data to inform decision maker decision-making for our member associations. Every MA, every national association is going to have a different reality. It's going to have a different leadership. It's going to have a different technical vision. But how do we use the data that we can collate to really signpost them towards what might be in their best interest in the development of football to create networks of best practice and to knit all of that together to create a comprehensive plan based on data and not just um individuals uh, opinions and i think that's yeah. very important for us as we're building out um pathways for each for, for each of our mas all 41 of them and the pathway for grenada and the outcome for grenada might be very different to barbados or trinidad or guatemala and having some data to inform those decisions for us from a CONCACAF perspective, from a leadership perspective in each of our countries, and and from a, even a club perspective is really important. So data is going to play a huge role in how we develop our our confederation. Yeah, it's it's yeah definitely like the capacity to use the data to inform the decision, and so to have facts and not just like ideas or whatever that is from from the sea level from the leadership team within NENA, but having real insights that can help you choose the best decision based on your reality is, is definitely something of you. And always, and as always, J, JB, it's about the data informing football decisions. And I think you'll see that for many, for many um, organization now that we have so much access to data and so much exciting innovations um, being brought into the game. And I think the, the overall uh, thought there is how do we use the data to inform football decisions and whether that's about setting a roadmap for a member association, whether that's about setting uh, parameters for us as a confederation or even about how you recruit players and measure players' outputs. Mm. Uh, I think that data has such an important role to play. Yeah. Yeah, well, I will not deep dive into the data subject, especially with, with the work like with at FIFPRO that I'm doing and stuff like that. But I think there is still a gray zone in terms of, especially for you guys, the players, in terms of the ownership of the data and how you can monetize them and what it means for players not being necessarily in the loop as it can be in North America with the collective bargaining agreements. And I mean, there is all these discussions around the legal challenges around the wearables or the optical tracking, which makes it available normally for the service provider but i don't think we have time to to deep dive into this and i don't want to put you in a in a tricky position as well so i, I will leave that on the side but uh is just going back to one of the points you mentioned with the mls and all the valuation and how it has been growing and seeing also new franchises coming in uh one thing because you are a former international player and you are also based in the region where i would say athletes Uh, and players at large over the last few years have been playing an increasing role in terms of like trying to understand but also shape the future of the sport. And many of them has, have become themselves like own investors and we've seen the likes of Stephen Curry or, or LeBron James or even like Serena Williams, but all coming or starting with the NBA and the basketball players that have their own venture, investing in, in new tech, in startups that first have an impact on the game but afterwards in other industries but i was wondering why why is it a bit different i mean you have david beckham which is might be but why is it different with football in terms of like why is there it feels there is a decade difference in terms of understanding and and being on this trajectory for players in in football compared to to other sports why, why is that I think there's definitely a cultural divide where that's concerned. You mentioned that 10 years uh, difference. And I think there is that. And I, I would ha maybe hazard a guess to say it's more. Um, I think that there is an attitude towards innovation, which has really been driven by, um, if I was to be objective, to say the US market is very much open to a lot more of, uh, even if you look at ownership 
uh, of clubs or ownership groups, the involvement of players within that. Um, that's not that that happens here in the US, even at this point that you look at Landon Donovan and other players who have been mm. not only uh, as a director of a club or not only on the board, but actually within ownership groups. I would hazard a guess that you wouldn't see that very often um, in Europe. Uh, I'd also say in regards to um, being open to investing in different technology or different different areas, I think that is something is very forward thinking here in the US. And I think that the setup around players uh, and athletes in the US is somewhat different to what I've seen in Europe. In Europe, usually a player would have an agent and that agent would look after your career. And I think I think in and around that, he would maybe head up uh, as you become uh, more established, maybe someone who would look after your social media and help mm. you in these areas. But it's not a very sophisticated ecosystem around the players. Um, I think in the US, it's much more based around um, uh, creating wealth and wealth management and how that wealth management intercedes with your interests, which invariably mm. will be in sports and how you can, how you can become uh, part of the ecosystem of not just business, but also the sport that you're involved in. This, I think, will change over time in Europe as, as players and athletes realize that they have something to offer, they have something to to bring. Of course, the more money that is that is going <laughs> to the players allow, affords them with more opportunities. But I think it's just a cultural divide. I think it's about time. Um, and I, I think, think players will have money, a more sophisticated um, environment around them and advisors and scope. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think this divide is clearly there. But I guess players, if, I mean, put money aside, for me, the, the main wealth is like the brand, the brand equity. I mean, the brand reputation they can bring on the table for many of the technologies or businesses out there i mean the exposure any player can bring alongside a network alongside many other uh, opportunities along the way way beyond just purely financial investment or anything like that i think and we're seeing it more and more but i guess i guess you're right it might be also like yeah it's also a culture. I mean, to, to your point, JB, if I look at myself, I, I have some friends who played in the NBA and we played at the, at the same, uh, during the same era, let's say. Their team around them, they would have the agent, they would have the business manager, they would have someone who focused on their brand. I was me and my agent. And that was it. Um, we maybe mm. we looked at different ways to invest or different ways to run my career, but there was no role around business development. Um, there was certainly no role around building a brand. Um, I was very fortunate that I had um, insight from my my family, which really helped me to, as I said earlier, put myself in positions which allowed people to think about me in a different way and of me in a different way. But it wasn't it wasn't something that was really looked at from, from from a 360 degree sort of vision. Yeah. And I think that they do that much more in the US. I think it's a cultural thing. And I think that those athletes are leading the way um, in regards to building their brand. I say brand, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a difficult word, but building their position uh, and building their network and of course, building their investments. No, I think, I think you're right. I think we can definitely talk about a brand. And that also relates to what you were saying at the beginning is like, as a as a player or as an athlete, you will have to retire. But to a certain extent, it's like make most out of it, but plan as well for the transition. And actually, all these players we've mentioned, especially in the US, have been super good in terms of planning ahead and making sure they have a plan in terms of once they retire, because they are using the fame or they are using all the opportunities they have while they are still playing and in the locker room, so that once they are not anymore, they are still involved. They are still having key roles, potentially at board level, and they are still being into the organizations where they want to be. So I guess you're right. You're right. I just want to make one point in that because I don't yeah. think that we can move past without saying it's certainly not perfect. We have far too many athletes bankrupt, far too many athletes within five yeah. years of, of, of retiring of the game. I believe the statistics at last look in the Premier League where I played, one out of three bankrupt within three five years, three out of five divorced. We need to do a better job institutionally in, in providing support for these young young people who have come into opportunity Financial and resources education. 
Absolutely. And, and maybe as an institution doing more, uh, I know from the union perspective and from the league, et cetera, there's things that I believe that could be done that sort of lessens the burden on the athlete and allows them to concentrate on their sport while still allowing them to live a very, very privileged life, which they've deserved. But I think we need to think about how we can provide more support, whether that's in education, whether that's putting things in place around saving and investments, but we could be more proactive and more forward thinking where that is concerned. Cool, Jay. That's, that's the way to end this podcast. I mean, we've, re we've reached out like the time. So Like as a conclusion, we could not do better. That was not planned, but I, I just love it. Maybe uh, just a thank you once again for the time. I mean, really appreciate you making the time and sharing all these insights and, and stories. Uh, we usually like to, to ask a last question around, like if you have any like movie or book series to share or something that I've been like, not a game changer for you, but something you would recommend to our audience. Yeah, and if so, not, you can tell me later. I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, I, I've tried my best to... Um, and first of all, before I say that, thank you, JB, for the invitation. This has been wonderful. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll definitely bank on that invitation to Paris. Uh, I believe you said I'd be able to stay in your apartment. So I look forward to that. And feel free to leave. To leave be my guest. To be there by myself. But actually, as ever... Um, you if you invite to me to Miami, stuff. that's fine. Like, I didn't commit to that. No, I didn't commit to any <laughs> invite to Miami, but you did commit to an invite to Paris, which I'll be taking you up on. Um, actually, in light of continuing to try to educate yourself, I've been reading uh, some books recently by um, Dr. Ooh. Ian Lawrence, who's a, a professor out of the, the UK, and he has a, a series of books on football club management, um, soccer in the US specifically, which I'm, of course, really interested in, and executive leadership in sport. I think that's something, an area where I, all, I want to improve. Uh, I think that, um, you know, it's really helped me grasp sort of different ideas and different views around what leadership really is. Uh, as I continue to my journey to find out and, and learn more about myself. So I would definitely recommend that book series. Um, and other than that, if the athlete in me can't get away from my Michael Jordan's Netflix, uh, I can't, I'm not sure if it was a Netflix, but the, the series he put on, yeah, remind yeah. me what it was called, JB? Um, shit. Shit, I don't remember. It's like change the game or like... Yeah, I can't remember what it's called, but that documentary, when you talk yeah. about leadership and dynamics in the dressing room and how he perceived himself and his leadership style, but how the, everybody else did. And at the root of it, all he wanted to do was win. But to the see last the dance. dynamics, the last dance, to see the different dynamics and how that affected everyone around him, I thought that was yeah. really fascinating. Yeah. All right, cool. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Jay, for the time and, and for this. I don't know if I will be reading everything, but for sure I will, I, will try, I will try to do so. Thanks, man. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy it as much as we love creating them. If you like the episode, feel free to comment, rate, and share with people around you. You can visit our website, www.lastsource.io, to learn more about our activities. You will discover a wide range of articles and can subscribe to our newsletter to receive the latest tech and sports news in your mailbox every month. Stay tuned for new episodes. Le Corner.